The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So as you would have heard during uh, the welcome time, we're continuing in our series in the book of Philippians, entitled The Shape of Love. When you choose to do what we've chosen to do here at GFC, to preach through books of the Bible consecutively, you inevitably reach points where the question arises, what am I supposed to do with this passage? We're at such a point today. Please turn with me to Philippians 2. Our focus is going to be verses 19 to 30. But let's take a minute to get our bearings in this book. Remember where we've been and where we are. Paul began this letter with joyful greetings and confident prayers for this local church, these beloved brothers and sisters and gospel partners. He went on to update them about his affairs, his joy in the progress of the gospel during his imprisonment in Rome, his expectation that he would be released from prison, and his plans to come to them and to continue to serve them. He then turned his attention to their affairs. He wanted them to live as worthy citizens of Christ's kingdom, standing firm in gospel unity, looking to each other's needs in humility. At the heart of Paul's exhortation is this staggering example of Christ's humility and obedience and exaltation. In light of such a king, we too are called to obey, to work out our salvation, and to stand out by rejoicing instead of grumbling and disputing, as as Sheldon uh, led us to understand so well last week. I was amazed the number of people I spoke with who were like, yeah, wow, that one hit me. Yeah, that was, that was real. You know, but God's word is real and it, it, it confronts us where we are and points us to God's grace so that we can grow. Now in chapter 2 verses 19 to 30, Paul turns his attentions back to his plans. And it feels a bit like we just moved from the magnificent to the mundane. From this awe-inspiring portrait of Christ and compellingly framed commands to a computer printout of a travel itinerary for Paul and two key partners. Timothy and Epaphroditus. When you read it, it's clear that Paul thinks highly of these men and wants the Philippians to regard them in a particular way. But what could the plans he speaks of and his regard for these brothers have to do with us? I mean, we could just skip these verses and move ahead to much more memorable verses and and much richer seeming verses in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But that would be a mistake and would result in loss for us. We preach with the conviction that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 teaches. Not every passage of scripture is equally profitable for us. I mean, some certainly plumb deeper depths than others. But every single one is given by God so that we will be properly equipped for everything God calls us as believers to do. So, we have strong reasons for substantial expectations of these ordinary seeming verses. So let's sit under this text, seeking to be shaped by it, trusting the work of the Spirit then, and looking to the work of the Spirit now. This is God's holy word, a gracious gift to us, His holy people, as we seek to please Him in everything. Philippians 2, 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, 
so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I, I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There are several aspects of being a pastor that I did not think much about before the fact. One of those is serving as a referee, not, not in a sport, but in providing references for people or witnessing documents. In, in preparation for ministry, it never crossed my mind once that this would become a regular part of my life. But now I'm getting used to trying to figure out forms and figure out, okay, where do I sign? What am I supposed to say? Which name goes where? And I'm getting used to receiving calls from numbers I don't know, and it's somebody from a bank or a landlord asking me if I know so-and-so and for how long and whether I consider them to be a trustworthy person. Now, I've wondered if as a pastor, maybe I should answer from like Romans 3 and say, yeah, no, no, they're not righteous. You know, yeah, I know them. You know, they're, they have lying lips. You know, I mean, that would be theologically true, but probably not very helpful for the purpose of why they're calling me. So I continue to do what's expected and I say, yeah, man, I know him, you know, and, and I recommend him as an upstanding citizen and somebody you could do business with, you know, and, you know, I'm glad I know you guys and can say that honestly. Now, you know, even though I didn't think much about it, commendation has been a part of the job of pastors from the very beginning. In the days of the early church and for most of its history, you couldn't Google somebody and listen to a few of their sermons to figure out if they were legit. So personal recommendations, understandably, carried a lot of weight. We see them in the letters, in all the epistles, as Paul and John and Peter write and just recommend associates and brothers and commend each other. In our passage today, Paul has turned his attention to sharing his plans for the future. Embedded in his itinerary are letters of commendation for Epaphroditus, who delivered this letter to the Philippians, and Timothy, whom Paul planned to send to Philippi in short order. But what's peculiar is that both of these brothers were already well known to the church in Philippi. So why does Paul make an effort to commend them? And is there any connection with what he's been saying in this letter so far? Or is this a kind of any other business section in the middle of the correspondence? Well, on one hand, Paul is sharing his plans with these brothers and sisters, his partners in ministry. But there's much more going on here. He is intentionally continuing to pastor them. He has been calling them to worthy lives, humble service, and gospel sacrifice. Now he's pointing their attention to two men who exemplify that. Timothy and Epaphroditus are living illustrations of what Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to be. 
as he sends both of these men to them, he doesn't want them to fail to see the gift that they are, to fail to recognize them and be served by them. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the obedience called for in this letter to be daunting and demanding. I'm grateful for the example of Christ, and I'm learning uh, to keep his humility and self-sacrificial service in view. But he isn't the only example that we can benefit from. Christ brings himself near to us through faithful believers. Here's a big truth that comes at us in these verses about Paul's plans and two Christ-like brothers. We need examples to help us to see what humble Christ-like service looks like in everyday life. This is why through the writing of the Apostle Paul, God is commending these men to us. It's why the Holy Spirit inspired these particular lines in this letter and ensured that they'd be faithfully delivered to us so that we could read them. God wants to help us to see how the commands of this book took on flesh in regular relationships through these brothers. That way we can learn to look for similar examples around us as we aspire to work out our own salvation. We need examples to help us to see what humble Christ-like service looks like in everyday life. We look at the examples of these men, each in turn, and work through how they're meant to influence us. So example one is Timothy's Christ-like care. And example two is Epaphroditus' Christ-like sacrifice. So let's look at Timothy first. Timothy's Christ-like care. So our attention is going to be on verses 19 to 24. No, the meat that we want to focus on in these verses and to chew on and to digest so that it can fuel our own obedience is Timothy's example as Paul commends him. But don't make the mistake of pushing everything else that Paul says to the side of your plate. There's no garnish here. Everything here is significant. Faith in Jesus, love for others, and the priority of the gospel is communicated in, in Paul's every impulse as he writes. In how he speaks about his plans, how he's seeking joy for himself, how he's prioritizing the needs of others. Even in these verses about plans and partners, Paul is exemplifying an other-oriented life and a gospel-directed life. Let me briefly point out two ways in, in which we see this. Notice in these verses, 19 to 24, how Paul's plans are bookended by the phrase, in the Lord. He says it right at the start. And then kind of towards the end in the middle of verse 24. Paul uses it often in this book. And it's not just a pious speech convention. That phrase is so wonderful and versatile because it encompasses so many aspects of what it means to live in union with our humble and exalted king. Back in chapter 1 verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ. Because those weren't merely words, you hear that reality even in his words as he lays out his plans. He's a living example of what we see taught in James 5 about committing our plans to the Lord. He has been brought into the sphere of God's gracious lordship in Christ. Uh, and that's where he lives his whole life. He hopes and he trusts in the Lord as he makes plans that are subject to Jesus' will, dependent on Jesus' help, aimed at expressing Jesus' love and desirous of Jesus' glory. And that pleases the Lord. The second thing worth noticing is how all the plans that Paul lays out here are other-oriented. He's going to send Timothy soon. He's sent Epaphroditus with this letter. But when you pay attention to the sort of men that these guys are, it's clear that Paul would have benefited greatly from keeping them around. 
He's in prison. And some of the other Christians in Rome are deliberately trying to make his situation more miserable. But his desire is to send these two men for the benefit of the Philippians so that they will be served and blessed by these brothers and having them flesh and blood examples of the character that he's been encouraging them to pursue. He wants to do everything he can to spur the progress of the gospel among them and from them to others. Even in seeking his own joy, he's seeking it in, the, in, in their progress and joy in the faith. In the next chapter, Paul will say this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That instruction is going to help us to read and respond to this section in chapter 2, not losing sight of Paul's example even as he commends the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. We need these examples, particularly because from the stand, particularly because you know, when you think about what it means to be uh, a Christian here in Jamaica, for the most part, it's a pretty low-cost initiative. You know, those who are not believers do not necessarily levy a high price on us. But that doesn't mean that Jesus demands little from us. We too are called to live consciously in the Lord and deliberately for the benefit of others. Which of course is very different from living for our own advancement with Jesus kind of as our base from which we launch and the backup plan in case of emergency. If you keep your eyes on people out there, those who are successful and esteemed, you'll be drawn to value what they value and imitate their pursuits. So let's keep paying attention to how Paul trusts in Jesus, values the gospel, and pours his life out for others. Let's focus now on the sketch of Timothy we're given here. How does Paul portray him? What does he highlight? He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Think about this commendation in the context of this letter. Some of the connections aren't as obvious in English, but they would be if we could read this text in the original Greek. More literally, Paul says, I have no one of like soul, no one like-minded. If you look back to verse 2 of this chapter, this is exactly the kind of unity in thinking and purpose and law that he's been calling these brothers and sisters to. He wants them to be one-souled, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In verse 4, he instructs them, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now he says of Timothy, he will genuinely care for you, for your welfare, for your affairs, the same affairs that Paul is concerned about in the teaching we've walked through between chapter 1, verse 27, and this point in the book. You see, Timothy embodies the other orientation that Paul has been commending to these believers. It's like he's bringing him up to the front of the class and saying to them, okay guys, take your head up from the textbook right now and look here. Look at this guy. It's going to help you to see what all of this I've been teaching you looks like. Look closely at him. And he's the ideal person to send, not just because of his example, but because he will think in the same way that Paul does and carry on, uh, carry Paul's heart, carry on his heart, the same priorities that Paul would have as he spends time among uh, these believers. In bringing back news to Paul, he'll be able to speak about their progress in the things that Paul has written about in these letters. And Paul anticipates that he's going to be encouraged by the report that Timothy will return with. Remember, Paul's joy depends on their gospel unity, on their humility, on their obedience. 
Paul underscores his commendation of Timothy in two ways. The first is comparison. They all seek their own interests. In emphasizing Timothy's uniqueness and contrasting him and them, he's not taking pot shots at Luke, who's like, hey, hey, what, what do you mean, dude? I'm right here, you know? Or any other ministry colleagues. Of those available to him during this period in a Roman jail, Timothy stood out, particularly against those in Rome who were preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. Paul rejoiced, remember, he rejoiced that they were preaching the true gospel, but he would never entrust these beloved saints to the care of such self-interested self people. And the comparison would have served to underscore his teaching to the Philippians not to live in such ways. There's a revealing correspondence here. Paul equates Timothy's genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians with seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been doing throughout this letter as he's called them to, to be heavenless, heavenless, heavenly citizens, worthy of the gospel of Christ, united with each other in fearless witness, imitating Christ's humility in their community. See, Paul isn't sending Timothy because he's a nice guy. He's sending him because he's a gospel guy. He illustrates Christ-like care. His heart towards others and his desires for them are shaped by what matters to Jesus. That all the commendation is intended to highlight Timothy as one they should keep their eyes on and seek to imitate as they pursue obedience is seen in the fact that they already know Timothy's proven character. Again, Paul isn't commending a stranger so they'll be like, oh, who's this guy? No, they know him. So he's just underscoring that. If, you look, if, you, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll realize that Timothy was with Paul when he first went to Philippi uh, and planted this church. This letter was being written 10 years after that. He probably was there during the apostles' subsequent visits to the region. Paul cannot come to visit them yet, but he can send Timothy. Speaking of a similar situation in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Like father, like son. As soon as Paul has a clear sense of how things will go, he intends to send Timothy, his son in the faith and beloved gospel partner, to these beloved saints so that he can care for them, bring news about Paul, and bring back news to Paul about how they're doing. All right, so let's put Timothy's example to work. Whoa, sorry. Let me stay right here. One of the things that we communicated from the very outset when we had an interest meeting right out there on the terrace before starting this church was that, uh, and, and the truth is we don't say it enough these days, is that our goal is to plant other churches from this one. Now that's not because we want to build our brand. It's because we think many others would benefit from the gospel doctrine, gospel culture, and gospel mission that's at the heart of what we've been called to do. And when we plant, it is our intention to send our best. That's what Paul does in this passage in sending Timothy. When you think about what Paul was walking through, when you think about the kind of person Timothy was and the relationship he had with Paul, surely it would have served Paul to keep him close. But out of love for others and for the progress of the gospel, he sent Timothy. And that's why we want to send our best. Those who are like-minded, excelling in Christ-like care, other-oriented, serving and anchoring this congregation, giving sacrificially. And it's going to hurt when we do that. 
But we trust God and we rejoice in reflecting the heart of the Father who sent his best. We need this passage to shape our corporate aspirations. We need it also to, to shape our personal aspirations. Timothy's portrait here in these verses needs to be on your vision board. You know, that, you know what you should see here when you look at these verses? You should see goals. It's like goals. Here are goals. Am I becoming like Timothy in growing in genuine concern for the interests of others? When I show up, when I walk into the room, do people experience Christ-like care? Am I attentive to others, learning to ask thoughtful questions that draw people out instead of just kind of waiting for my turn to speak? Am I listening with the goal of encouraging? Or are most conversations a stage uh, to, to talk about me by boasting or complaining? Is my heart towards others shaped by what matters to Jesus? The other way we want to use Timothy's example is to look for his resemblance in those around us so we can keep our eyes on them and imitate them. It was that kind of Christ-like care that drew us to join Sovereign Grace. The, the first time Sean, Sheldon, and I interacted with Mark Prater, who still serves as our executive director, he took a determined interest in our affairs, considering us more significant than himself. And it was so strange. We hadn't met many a leader who would walk into a room and want to know about us. So that made this family, the family that we've joined, really attractive to us. But we can look much closer to home. God has blessed our community with people who, ex who exemplify Christ-like care. I want to highlight a few, even though I know they would not want me to do this. And I know they think they have a long way to go. Yet they are already such a blessing to us. Lorraine Rainford doesn't have the opportunity to be with us very often face-to-face -face because she literally lives on the other side of the island. A few months ago, I watched Lorraine give her time and attention at the end of our service to a guest who was among us. She was attentive enough to recognize that this lady was going through a lot at the time, and she spent over an hour just listening to her and encouraging her. And it was clear, you know, because I, I was able to talk with the lady briefly afterwards, it was clear that she had experienced the care of Christ that morning. So thank you, Lorraine, for representing us so well and giving us an example to follow. I want to honor my brother, Patrick Meikle. There is a reason so many men in GFC just love to talk with Patrick. There's this magnetic pull. They come and engage in conversation. Uh, I did a little detective work because I'm like, I'm sure this is the case, but I'm going to ask. So I asked one brother, hey, why do you like to talk with Patrick? And he highlighted how refreshing it is the way Patrick listens so well is sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and is compassionate in a culture that doesn't allow men to do such things. Patrick, please know that you are a blessing to our community and to me personally. One more, the bride-to-be, Jordana Guthrie. I remember, uh, this was a long time back, he, he, he Dana, uh, Dana was living on campus, and I went to link with her. We sat by Uwe Chapel. She was going through a lot, and... As we talked, Dana was just telling me all kinds of things about people in GFC, all kinds of details. She was just like, yeah, and I was talking to so-and-so, and this is what's happening with them. I was talking to so-and-so, and I'm like, that's uncanny that you listened so well and that you remember what's going on with people. I'm sure if you've been around, you've experienced her coming back to you to say, hey, how's that thing going? 
What's happening with that? Just that kind of loving follow-up. Donna, you are a gift to us. Thank you for your, your, your care, my friend. No, the truth is there are many other examples I could point to, but we'd be here for much longer than we ought to be. What I want you to be doing is holding up this picture of Timothy's Christ-like care and looking around you to spot the resemblance and keeping your eyes on those, uh, on those people as you work out your own salvation. I'll say this now and I'll probably say it in an, another couple of sermons. One of the worst things we can do as we walk together as believers is look at somebody else who's reflecting Christ and say, come on, I can't be like that. Look at her, you know. Look at that, you know. Uh, because the, the, the reason they're there is to be an example. And as we learned last week, we are working out our own salvation, not by our own power, but as God works in us, both to desire and to do the things that please him. So let's not just look at others and kind of admire them, but just think, I'm not doing that, you know. But let's pursue uh, imitating the good examples we have around us. Paul's plan in the Lord is for Timothy to head to Philippi soon, but the person who will show up with this particular letter that we are reading was, uh, was Epaphroditus. So now Paul will speak of him and commend him also. So let's look at our example number two, Epaphroditus' Christ-like sacrifice. Pay attention to the tone of this section of the passage. There's affection and attachment and concern and gratitude. It's a beautiful testimonial to what the gospel does in knitting people's hearts together. You read this section and it feels like family. It's important to see that familial connection as the context for service. Serving in the gospel isn't, isn't task-focused. It's people-focused. We're not volunteering for a worthwhile cause. We're not like, you know, you have a set-up team here, and we've seen them many times this summer setting up for weddings. That's not us. We're a family. Uh, this morning I came in, and I'm just watching people greet each other like family as they come in, and I'm like, yeah, this is it. You know? We're not just doing tasks. We are loving one another together. See, when we, when we serve, we are either serving those whom God has united to us in Christ or those we're praying he'll bring into the family. So we serve with our eyes on Jesus, seeking to bless our neighbors. That love is underneath all of the interactions in this passage. Now, we're able to reconstruct a fair bit of what had happened between this passage and chapter 4, verses 10 to 18. The Philippians... Remember, they're, they're Paul's key gospel partners. They've been supporting him out of concern for him, hearing that he was in, in prison. They had sent Epaphroditus to Rome to deliver financial support on their behalf. And the expectation seems to have been that he would stick around to help Paul however he could. But along the way, it seems that he had taken ill. The news reached the believers back in Philippi. Now, it's impossible to know exactly how. Some, some commentators speculate that maybe he took ill, ill on the journey and somebody from the team that was traveling with him went back or maybe they passed somebody heading for Philippi who knew them, who carried the news back to say, yo, he never looked so good, you know. Spot him when we're walking near and, yo, he did look serious. But, you know, so we, we don't know how exactly that happened, but what's clear is that they knew he was ill, but they didn't know how ill he had been. Paul now tells them that this dear brother almost died. Clearly, despite the distance between Philippi and Rome, which was somewhere around the region of 800 miles to walk, news was traveling. 
So Epaphroditus then hears that the brothers and sisters back in Philippi had heard about his illness and, and, and he was distressed. Remember, this isn't a time of modern communication where you just fire off a message to say, no man, everything good. I made it, I'm fine. It also was not a time of modern medicine. People died from many illnesses that are easily treatable now. And to fall ill while traveling, uh, when you'd still have to walk the rest of the way, was particularly serious. Epaphroditus knew that back in Philippi, they would have been wondering whether he was still alive. This is clearly one of the reasons Paul thought it necessary to send him back home. Not just to send news this time, but to send him back home. Even though he had come to help and it still wasn't certain how Paul's situation would work out. Paul didn't want the Philippians to continue to worry about him. And Epaphroditus, for his part, was longing to be with his family. And distressed by the uncertainty that they would have been dealing with. Again, we're seeing Paul modeling other orientation. He's not thinking about what would serve him in his imprisonment, but what would serve others, what would serve Epaphroditus, what would serve the Philippians. But he has more in mind than their comfort. He wants them to honor this brother before them, which also honors them since he represents them. Sorry, just making sure I know where I am. Right, so look at verse 25. Paul is going to stack up the commendations for Epaphroditus. He says, he's my brother. And you hear the intimacy there. He's not just a brother. You know, he's my brother. Fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's your messenger. Literally, you're sent one. You're apostle. And you're minister to my need. That last descriptor is using the language of priesthood from the scriptures. Paul is holding up this man as a brother and partner, fighting side by side with him in the work of the gospel. I mean, you'd, you'd read that and you'd think Epaphroditus is out there boldly preaching, defending the faith in front of Roman government officials, defending Paul's reputation to his distractors. I mean, surely he was doing something important and prominent. Surely he was playing a key role. But Epaphroditus was basically a courier. He was Western Union in the flesh. Here's what we need to see. Here's a conviction that needs to grab our hearts, to animate us, and to anchor us in sacrificial service. Everything that supports the work of the gospel is gospel work. And everyone that does that work is a gospel partner. Connect this to where we are right now, looking to, to staff our volunteer teams for the next year. Suppose you were sharing with a friend that you serve at Grace Family Church, and they said, oh, so what do you do? You know, well, there are a few prominent roles, a few more prominent roles among us, but the truth is a lot of what we do right now, a lot of what we need to do is not glamorous. We don't yet have a bunch of outward-facing ministries serving specific needs in communities or, or, or in the performing arts or seeking to shape public policy. So I could see you answering in much this way. Oh, nothing much. I help people to find seats in the service. Well, that's gospel work. Oh, I wrap up cords afterwards. That's gospel work. I clean the toys the kids play with in Grace Kids. That's priestly work. I help to think of ways we can better welcome guests and, uh, uh, and integrate them into the community. Well, you're a fellow soldier. You know, I'm the one who usually gets sent to pick up and drop off lunch when we have events. Apostle and minister to our needs. I post the sermons each week. Well, you are my fellow worker. 
If you volunteer for a role that is not prominent, please do not make the mistake of thinking that what you do is not important. What we're doing together is gospel partnership. What you're doing is standing shoulder to shoulder with me and Sean and Sheldon in this work. And what we all are doing is the work of Christ. That's what Paul calls what Epaphroditus was doing. If you look in verse 30, it's the work of Christ. He's bringing the financial gift or his bringing of the financial gift. He's coming to serve Paul in whatever way he could. That was the work of Christ. So he's an example of Christ-like service and in particular sacrificial service. Now I can't unfold it in detail right now, but the language in verse 30 links Epaphroditus' suffering with illness with Jesus' suffering that Paul described earlier in this chapter. This brother nearly died. He risked his life to serve. No, of course, Epaphroditus didn't go on this trip planning to get sick, but he followed through and finished the job to serve Paul. And he was serving on the Philippians' behalf, doing what the rest of the church was not in a position to do. Jesus, for his part, didn't merely risk his life. He deliberately laid it down, suffering for our sake. That sacrifice made all the difference for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. And if you don't yet know Jesus, he invites you to know him and trust him and to be saved by his sacrifice and brought into his family. Paul is holding up Epaphroditus as an illustration of Christ-like sacrifice, the willingness to lay one's life down in love for others. Sometimes serving, even in small ways, will demand great sacrifices from us. Uh, it will become inconvenient. You kind of say to yourself, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I experienced that just in the past uh, a few days. You know, I've, been, I've been serving with a group called Langham Preaching. And a friend asked me to help with the steering committee. I didn't recognize the steering committee would involve buying banana chips and drinks and buying ice and putting in coolers and printing all of these things. And I'm, I'm like, you know, it's not so much that I thought the steering committee was glamorous, but I assumed there were hands to do the work. You know, I didn't realize that the steering committee was just kind of sitting there staring and somebody had to get out and do something. You know? And I really found my heart just thinking, no, but is this worth it? That I, I'm supposed to be caring for Grace Family Church. This is demanding a lot of my time. And God was just using this passage to minister to me, just to challenge me to say, hey, yeah, you never planned to make these sacrifices, but this is gospel work. That's why you took it on, because it's gospel work. And if it's gospel work, then it's worthwhile work. So I took a deep breath and planned my schedule, trusting I'd be able to finish the sermon and, and served. And, you know, a couple of guys were there yesterday. A couple couldn't make it, but it was a good time. It was a worthwhile time. So I, I, I want you to look at Epaphrodite's example as we serve together because there are going to be moments where somebody can't show up and you're carrying more than you, you thought you'd be carrying. There are going to be times when somebody asks you to do relief and you just served last week. You're like, oh, but okay. You know? And we need to recognize that the sacrifices we make in doing gospel work are worth making. So it's, it's, it's interesting that what Paul wants to make sure happens. Remember, these guys know Epaphroditus well. But he wants to make sure in the face of the issues that were threatening to impede their progress in the gospel... He wanted them to see as he sends back one of their own as an example of what each and every one of them was called to do. And he doesn't only want this church to imitate this brother. He wants them to honor him. 
No, it may have been that in coming back after falling ill and not sticking around in Rome to serve Paul, Epaphroditus' mission could have been seen as a failure. I mean, that's not what they sent him to do. He's supposed to, he was supposed to be there ministering to Paul's needs, but ends up requiring care himself. But whether that was the case or not, Paul has gone to great pains to shape how these saints would welcome this brother back home. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He's an example of Christ-like sacrifice. He's a servant to be esteemed and emulated. So I want to take some time to do what this passage calls us to do, to honor a few people who have been serving among us. But before I do that, I want to highlight something that's embedded in these heartfelt words that isn't by any means a tangent. It's an expression of life in Christ, of walking, trusting the Lord, of working uh, with faith in Jesus, uh, and just how, how do you face life as you know, all of that is going on. The way that Paul talks about Epaphroditus' illness and healing can really serve us. Healing, however it comes to us, is God's mercy. Sickness is a consequence of the fall, and healing is an expression of undeserved kindness. And it's a very personal mercy. Paul had said earlier in this letter, to die is gain. That's true, but it does not mean that death isn't also a loss. Death robs us of the presence of precious friends and gospel partners. Uh, Sean, in praying, had highlighted the fact that in Sovereign Grace, we've lost a few uh, friends and partners in the last several years. Uh, there was a guy uh, serving in Zambia, really just anchoring massive work there, just outreach work, uh, an orphanage, a school, and just died suddenly over one weekend, just died. I mean, they did a tribute to him in something they sent to me, and I couldn't read it. I was choked up. This was months after, but just remembering that he's gone, I was just choked up seeing his face on this tribute. In this passage, Paul points out that God's mercy spared him from sorrow on top of sorrow. He was already dealing with many reasons to be sorrowful. And he was like, man, if Epaphroditus had died, that would have just been sorrow on top of sorrow. I hope that that helps you to see what it looks like to authentically live under the lordship of Jesus. We mourn those we lose, even though we know they're not lost to us forever. We cry out for God's mercy and illness, and we rejoice in it as we receive it. We recognize it to be God's kindness. We haven't successfully twisted his arm. This is his mercy. We recognize that such kindness, though it may come to us through modern medicine, is still a very personal gift from God. And we rejoice in those occasions, even though we may have many reasons, many other reasons to mourn. So I didn't want to miss that opportunity to highlight this instance of lived theology here in Philippians. One of the ways that we can bring this passage to life in our community is by honoring such men and women who exemplify Christ-like sacrifice. Now, I thank God again. I started writing the list, and there are many among us. I want to highlight Jessica Johnson. And she's shaking her head because she does not like this. <laughs> we love you, Jess. A few weeks ago, we were here, and it was a windy day, and the wind was just moving this screen. And throughout my sermon, Jess brought a chair and sat down right there and held the screen so that you could read what was on it. I was just like, what? She didn't sit with her husband, you know, and take her notes. She just sat there ensuring that we could read. And I don't think most people even noticed because you're just sitting down there. Thank you, Jess. That's such an example of sacrificial service. I want to honor 
Sam and Sarah, who have been working behind the scenes from before day one, doing thousands of things you all know nothing about. You do not see what they do. You do not know when they're up and working. Uh, and as I said, they've been doing this for more than three and a half years, and sometimes without much help. Thank you guys for your sacrificial service. That's building this church. I want to honor our children. Now, some of them are off at camp, uh, but this is an opportunity to say to you, please say thank you to them. When they come in the morning, they serve. They help to wipe chairs and put out chairs. The boys usually take the parking sign down. They put up the banner outside. So they're involved and working. Uh, and it's going to encourage them so much if you say to them, thank you for serving us. I want to honor my brother Omari. Yeah. <laughs> Omari anchored the sound team during the hardest season in the pandemic. Omari, you were working side by side with me. You know, he would come to my house, we're setting things up. If we have to record things beforehand, it's a phone call to say, okay, Mari, we're doing a, we're doing a pre-recorded this week. It's all right, okay, we're coming up by the golf club, we're setting up, we're doing the recording. He's editing, adding images, all kinds of things. Uh, and we're pivoting each week, you know, almost each week as the government changes regulations and we're going to a live stream and all of this and just week after week, side by side with me. Thank you for serving, brother. I want to honor Darren. I don't think he's here this morning, but you know, if you come early enough, you'd realize Darren rides in on his bike early some Sunday mornings. And Darren, Darren will tell you, he don't know the sound system yet, you know. But he's there just to give a hand in setting up, and he's learning the ropes as he goes. And you know, we've gone through different seasons with different people serving. Dane was serving hard at one point in time. Uh, Vance was pushing hard at one point in time. And with young babies, we understand that it's much harder to organize family being here early. And Darren has stepped up to serve in that way. So I really want to honor you, Darren. Thank you. I want to honor the Grace Kids team, including our teens who give support in the toddler's class. You know, they miss sitting under the word every other Sunday uh, to serve the children, children among us. And that's such an example of sacrificial service. There was one small but so, such, such a significant thing we saw at the last members meeting. I don't know if Zoe Harris is serving somewhere or with, with one of the classes, but you know, the last our last members meeting, Kean told us about Andre and just, you know, helping us to understand uh, uh, his condition and his capabilities and what he battles and just how we can love him. And Zoe Harris turned around immediately and engaged him in conversation. You know, instead of just doing her own thing, she just decided to spend time with him. And it's such an example of Christ-like sacrifice. So can I challenge you to do something? Keep your eyes open for people serving in small ways that are easily missed and take the time to thank them for what they're doing. It's far too easy to take each other for granted, isn't it? You know, you just, yeah, we're just going through, we're doing our thing, and we just miss the ways others are pouring out their lives. So we need to become more deliberate then about not taking people for granted. Let's be, uh, it, it occurred to me that none of us suffers because we get too much encouragement. You know, it's like, no, no, please, please. My heart can't deal with all this encouragement. No, that does not happen. No, Jess, you're not suffering, girl. You're not suffering. That's not what's happening. <laughs> you're just unaccustomed to the love. <laughs> so let's be a community where honor is coming at us in all directions 
as we serve each other. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell anybody that the Athletics World Championships being hosted in Eugene, Oregon, began this past Friday. I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have been tuning in just to see how we're going to fare. And tonight is going to be amazing. I'm not speaking as a prophet. I'm just I'm speaking as a Jamaican. That wasn't no, that wasn't pastor. Yeah, you know, that was that's just me with high expectations. One of the athletes competing in these championships is a guy named Julius Yego. He's a Kenyan javelin thrower. Now, Kenya is not known for producing javelin throwers any more than we are. Yego shot to prominence because he learned to throw javelin at a world-class level by watching YouTube videos. I kid you not. He was sitting in Kenya watching YouTube, imitating what he was seeing. He is the African record and Commonwealth record holder for the event with a personal best of 92.72 meters, a throw which won him gold at the 2015 World Championships in Beijing. He won silver in Rio the next year. Now, who knew that attentive imitation could get you so far? We need examples to help us to see what humble, Christ-like care looks like in everyday life. God has given us such examples in his word. In these few lines, there's so much to pay attention to and imitate in Timothy and Epaphroditus. These verses help to train our eyes to look for examples of humble Christ-like care and service in those around us. Choose your influences wisely, my friends. Don't underestimate how much you can grow as God works in you by imitating them. Keep your eyes on those whom God would commend. Let's honor such people among us. Let's watch how they move and do what they do. And as we do so, we have every reason to expect that God will forge the kind of joyful partnerships among us, hearts knitted to each other and poured out in sustained sacrifices that we see here in his word. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.